So uh, my name is Charles Anderson, and uh, I am not on staff with Veritas. Uh, and I am a pastor at The Crossing here in Columbia. And it is slightly depressing for me to realize how old I am. And you'll have this, you, you won't understand this yet, but you will in a couple years. Uh, I, I have experienced the phenomenon where while I get older, my mental age hasn't, and I still think of myself in my 20s. And so uh, it's particularly in moments like this when I'm with you guys that I realize how much I've lied to myself, uh, and I'm not anywhere close. Let's pray, and uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about stories, and we're going to talk about how stories start tonight. Let me pray for us. Lord God, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. How does, how does a story start, and does that matter? Well, certainly authors think a lot about it, and they work really hard to get the first line right, knowing that they can kind of really pull you in and intrigue you and set up the rest of the story. So I thought we'd start, we'll look at the, the first line of some stories, and we'll see kind of how we do here with this. So the first one, Call Me Ishmael, which is from Moby Dick, indeed. Herman Melville, Moby Dick, okay? Next one. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And that's from? Pride and prejudice indeed. Okay. All right. I've stirred people up with that one. All right. This one, this one's slightly, maybe a little harder. It was a bright, cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. Anybody? Come on. Guess. No? 1984 by George Orwell. Well, call it out. You don't get any credit for getting it right if you weren't willing to call out. Please. Okay. Slightly more, maybe in our wheelhouse. Next one. Yeah, there you go. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley. That's right. J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter, and in America called the Sorcerer's Stone, but in the UK it's... That's right, Philosopher's Stone. And I point that in honor. Um, we've got a good friend of, of ours is here this week from England visiting us for a week. She's here tonight because she's a student in, uh, in the UK. So I thought I would point that out. A good first line. A good first line, it, it pulls you in. And it gives you a sense of what the story is going to be about and, and intrigues you. It, it, it makes you want to keep reading. Okay? So what about the big story of the Bible? The first line there. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a really basic kind of sentence, isn't it? God created the heavens and the earth. And yet that basic claim is actually far-reaching, and it's monumental. And just that first sentence alone actually really helps us have an understanding of what the Bible is going to be about and what creation is about. And it's specifically, it's about God. When we think about creation, we tend to come with different questions to the Bible. We have questions about the how. Like, how did God do it? And is that reconcilable, what the Bible says, with contemporary scientific understanding? And that's on the agenda for the Bible, but it's a lot lower down. The Bible is a lot more concerned with the who of creation than it is anything else. In the beginning, God. 
God is the one who created. And in fact, there's a whole context for what the Bible's talking about, and it's not ours. Because it's precisely the question of who created that the Bible wants to address. And and here's a, a little way for us to see it. Later in Genesis 1, in verse 16, it says, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. Now, that's kind, of, that's kind of an odd way to put it, isn't it? The greater light and the lesser light. Did, did, did Moses, did they just not know what the, the sun and the moon were actually supposed to be called? Is that why he kind of put it in those terms? And it actually gives us a clue because here's the thing. The early biblical writers are well aware of what the sun and the moon's names are. And they were well aware that the people around the ancient Israelites looked to the sun and the moon as gods. As these deities to be worshipped. And they want to point out, look, so far from the fact that the sun and the moon have anything to do with being God, being in control, being a creator. In fact, they're so insignificant that we're not even going to name them. We're not going to even use their name in Genesis 1 because that's how small they are compared to the God who actually creates. In the beginning, God. That's what the story of creation is concerned about. And here's why. Because God as creator, it means that God is Lord. For God to make everything actually has this profound implication that God's in charge of everything. This is what the Psalms pick up in Psalm 93, 95. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it. For, that little word because, grammar, it actually matters. For he made it. That's the reason, therefore, that God is actually the great God and the great king above all gods. It belongs to God. God's in control of it. God has the authority over it because God made it. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Everything that exists is under God. Because everything exists because God made it. And so it means then that there's not a single part of your life, of your day, that doesn't actually belong to God. The, the blog for The Crossing, we call it Every Square Inch. And it comes from a, a quote by a guy named Abraham Kuyper. Kuyper was 19th century and in um, the Netherlands. Kuyper was a Renaissance man. He was a newspaper publisher. He was a university professor. In fact, he was president of a university. He also happened to be the prime minister of the Netherlands. And he was a theologian. He's got a great quote where he says, there is not a single square inch of all of human existence at which the Christ does not look at it and say, that's mine. Everything, he says, everything belongs to God. Every square inch Christ claims because Christ has made all of it. And so it means then that what you take during the day is for class. If you're in a journalism sequence, if you're in organic chemistry, if you're in English 1000, Christ looks at it and says, that's mine. It means when you're pomping for homecoming or when you're hanging out in tailgating, Jesus says, that's mine. It means when you're sitting there wasting the time where you should be studying, but you're playing Call of Duty, Jesus looks at that video game and says, that's mine. 
There is not a single part of your life that God does not make a claim on because God made it all. Everything belongs to him. Whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is beautiful, that's God's. All truth, all beauty, all goodness. Because he made the creation and he made it good. When you read Genesis 1, there's this refrain. God saw what he had made and it was good. And it was good. And at the end of day 6, he says it was very good. And that's not just true because, well, there's no sin there yet. That's true all the way through the story. In Paul's letter in the New Testament, he's writing to one of his kind of colleagues in ministry, to Timothy, and he says this in 1 Timothy 4. Everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated, it's set apart by the word of God in prayer. Paul says, everything that God's made is good, and you can receive it and use it with thanksgiving, because God made it. And so as the creator and the Lord, God understands everything completely. He knows it the best because he's the one who made it. So in Genesis 1-5, God makes the light and he calls it day, and he makes the darkness and he calls it night. And that idea that God is calling it, that he's naming it, it's to show that God understands it and that God is telling us what it means. Because a name in the Bible isn't just well, why did you name your son or daughter that? Well, I don't know, I just like the sound of it, or I heard it somewhere, or we made it up, okay? That's not the way the Bible works. The Bible says names mean something. They reveal and they show something. They have significance. And so for God to name the night and the day is God to say, look, I made it, I understand it, I know it. And so everything in reality, God's already, in a sense, pre-interpreted it. God's already given it its meaning. We don't create it, we discover it. We look to discern it, to figure it out. All of this comes from God. And yet that doesn't mean all of it comes directly from God. All of reality, everything that exists belongs to God. He's in charge of it. And he has something to say. But you know what? It doesn't necessarily mean that he says it directly or he says it in kind of a, a spiritual way. There's a really intriguing couple of verses about this in Isaiah Isaiah is one of the prophets of the Old Testament. Isaiah 28. Look at this. I think it's really interesting. The prophet says, Listen and hear my voice. Pay attention and hear what I say. When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? When he's leveled the surface, doesn't he sow caraway and scatter cumin? Doesn't he plant wheat in its place, barley in its plot, and spelt in its field? His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. It's really interesting. He's saying, look, the farmer figures out what he's doing. The farmer knows how to make a differentiation between the types of crops that he has and the field that he should plant it in and how he should plant it and how he should harvest it. And he knows that because God tells him. But it doesn't mean that God tells him in some kind of special way. It's, not, it's in the Bible. It's not that he prays and somehow God speaks to him. How does God tell him? Well, God tells him because he, the farmer works hard. And he listens to what other people say. And he gets advice and he practices and figures, well, that didn't work. I've got to try it a different way next time. And that's knowledge that comes from God. Everything belongs to God. And so the question for us is, do we tend to treat some areas of life as if, well, God doesn't care about that? Do we think in terms of compartments? Okay, well, I've got kind of my spiritual life, 
and, you know, I come to Veritas, I go to church some Sundays when I can get up, and I'll see my Bible, and, you know, when I'm back home, I do that, but then there's the rest of my life. There's my studying, and there's my hanging out, and there's my partying, and those are two separate things. Well, the message of creation is to say, no, they're not separate things. There's not a spiritual and then a secular area. All of it belongs to God. God cares about everything that you're doing. And for some of you, this is probably a slightly frightening proposition. Some of you are, you find it a little unnerving. For God to say that he's Lord over everything, well, well, that's exactly what we don't want to hear because we want to be Lord. We want to be autonomous. We want to call the shots and we want to write the laws for ourselves. But instead, the Bible's telling us that, that, well, God made you. And God made everything about you, and God made everything that you're to care about. And so it actually belongs to God. And God has something to say. But the thing is, it's actually meant to be encouraging. It's a comforting thing because God not just has something to say, but God cares. And God is on our side in that regard because God wants to see the things that we do. He wants to see that they actually matter. For God to be Lord over everything because he's the creator is actually to change our perspective about what we're supposed to do day by day. So the first thing is the who of creation. Well, it's that God is the Lord. But then the second thing is the implication that that has for us and our role. Because in Genesis 1, you get kind of these stages of creation. So the first is that kind of, that first verse, that God creates everything out of nothing. But then, hold on a second, not yet. But then... The rest of Genesis 1 is actually concerned about kind of the process that God then goes and creates. So if you know anything about Genesis 1 and there's kind of this day 1, day 2, day 3, that's the second stage of creation. And here's the thing. It is organized in a very particular way. It's, It's a literary crafted piece. I don't think it has anything directly to say about the questions that we have about evolution. Okay? Those are significant questions, and the Bible has something to say, but not in a direct way. But in Genesis 1, here's what it wants to say. Now we can do that. Okay, so bear with me. Slightly nerdy, but this is what happens when you get a guy who did academic study um, kind of thing. So if you look, the days in Genesis are arranged in a very particular way, and there's a correspondence. The first three days, day one, day two, day three, are all about God forming Okay? God making, as it were, the big picture, the big structure. And then days four to six go back and they fill it in. Which is why, for example, on day one, God somehow creates light and darkness. But it's not until day four that he actually gets to forming the sun and the moon. Which, if you're reading from a scientific perspective, seems nonsensical. How is it that you can have an earth if you don't actually have a solar system? Well, that's because the Bible's coming at it from a different angle. And the Bible is saying, look, this is the work of creation. God forms things, and then God fills them. And so day five, he fills the the land. He fills the air. He fills the sea. Day six, then he fills the ground that he made on day three. And then on day seven, he rests. And here's where this gets interesting, because the stage of creation here in Genesis 1 isn't the final stage. There's actually another step to it. Look at Genesis 
128 and 215. Here's what I want to do. This is dangerous because I'm going to let you talk and I may not be able to pull you back. Okay? That's the warning I was given. Um, but I, here's what I want to do. I want you to, to look at that. I'm going to read those verses for us. And then in, in pairs, okay, I want you to turn to the person next to you. And I want you to discuss real quick what's, what, are, what, what are the responsibilities that human beings have according to these verses. What is it that human beings are supposed to do according to these verses? Okay? So Genesis 128. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then Genesis 2.15, which is kind of a, a second creation account from a different angle. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Okay? Turn to each other, discuss. What are the responsibilities that we have? Okay. All right. So what do you see? Somebody, somebody give, me, give me one thing they see there in terms of our responsibilities. Fill the earth. To fill the earth. Okay. So fill the earth. And that means it's a commandment about sexual reproduction, about having children, about families growing. Okay. What else is there? To subdue the earth, yeah. To subdue, to kind of, to bring it into line. And actually that language implies that there's a certain unruliness still to the created world that needs to be kind of brought into line. What else? So to fill, to subdue, what else do you see? To take care of it, which is a great compliment, okay? So on the one hand, we're to subdue, but that doesn't mean to dominate. It means to take care of it. It means to cultivate it. What else do you see? To work it, yeah. Um, <laughs> so we're to work, we're to kind of, to cause it to grow, to develop, right? Do you see the pattern here? That you can put all of these kind of commandments and basically human beings are called to form and to fill what God has made. So if God in Genesis 1, if God is doing this work of forming and filling well, it turns out when he makes human beings, he turns around and tells us what we're to do is to form it and to fill it. That we carry on God's work of creation. That God starts it, but he actually doesn't finish it. God's work of creation is carried on now by you and me. 
And so there's this idea there that you understand now why the Bible describes this. When it defines what it means to be human, it says in the verses right before this, uh, it says that we're created in God's image. We're created to represent God, to show God, to image him. It's a dynamic thing. And precisely it's dynamic, it's active, because we do what God does. So if God is the Lord with a capital L, in a surprising way, Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that you and I are to be lords with a lowercase l. That you are actually created to be a little lord. That you carry on, if you're truly human, if you are living out God's calling for you as a human being, you're actually a lord. You are doing the work of cultivating and creating Because here's the thing, creation is good, but it's not perfect. Creation is good, which means there's no sin when God makes it. It's ethically right. There's no defect in it, but it's not perfect because it's not complete. It's actually meant to grow and to become something more. And so it's been noticed that creation, the universe, the world starts in a a garden and it ends in a city. The vision at the end of the book of Revelation is that it's a garden city now that comes down in terms of the new heaven and the new earth. Which is to say that there's work to do to get it from point A to point B. And that's our responsibility. Creation, God's world, it needs to be developed. It needs to flourish. And that's our responsibility. God has made us in his image precisely to carry on what he's done. So all of those things that God cares about, okay? English 1000 and pomping and video games and watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine, all of those things, actually God cares about them and therefore he wants you to care about them. That God says, if you are going to live out your story as a human being, it means that you're going to be a little Lord, Okay, lots of ways that we can get this screwed up, okay? Lots of ways that you can hear that and you think, okay, well, it's pretty easy to go from a lowercase l to a capital L, all right? It's easy to think, well, we, use, you know, we, we have the phrase, you're lording it over somebody, and that's a negative thing. Or, or there's a danger that we can kind of go Ron Burgundy and go, well, you know, I'm kind of a big deal. People around here know me, all right? That's not what this has in mind. There's a humility that says, I'm under the Lord, even as God has given me a responsibility. That's the vision of Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is thinking about meditating on Genesis 1, and here's what it says. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. That's what it means to be a human being. It means to rule over and to develop everything that God's made. And so what you do, the studies that you have, what you're thinking about in terms of a job after college, God cares about those things. It's not just God cares about Bible study. God cares about whether you're an accountant. In fact, he cares about what kind of accountant you are. Are you somebody who's good? Do you actually know how to do the spreadsheet right? God cares about that. 
It's not just, well, I'm going to find a job and it's going to enable me to make money so that I can live well. Or it's going to enable me to make money so that I can give it away. Or I'm going to have a job so that I can show people what Jesus is like and I can talk about Jesus. All of those things are good, but that's not the sum of it. God actually wants you to have a job because that's what it means to be human. And God's made that. And God cares that you build a good bridge if you're an architect or you're in construction. God cares that you put together a schedule in the right way if you're an accountant. God cares that when you teach kindergartners that how you treat them and how you help them learn their alphabet, God cares about that. Because God made all of that. And God's called you to make that too. The reality is, though, of course, that we're God's image bearers in a cracked and broken way. The, the image of God doesn't shine forth from us like it should because we've corrupted it. And, and it's ruptured and it's broken and it's cracked. It's defaced. And it's very interesting to see that the Bible talks about Jesus in precisely these terms in God's image. We're not exercising our rule in the right way. We're dominating creation. We're dominating each other. And so Jesus comes as the true image, the true human being. Look at Colossians 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And as the perfect image, Jesus comes to put right and to renew us as image bearers. Hebrews 2, it picks up on Psalm 8. It uses the exact same language. It quotes Psalm 8, and then it interprets it and says, look, this is what it's supposed to mean. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we don't see everything subject to them. Which is a great line because the Bible says, look, this is our calling. We're supposed to be ruling over. We're supposed to be cultivating, developing. But you know what? That's not what's happening. It's not the case that everything is what it's supposed to be. And so verse 9, we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor. That's the language of Psalm 8. He's crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That the true man dies in our place as human beings who have walked away and broken the image of God. And Jesus comes and in our place dies precisely so that we might find our place in the story that we're supposed to have. That we might be renewed and that we might live out our calling as image bearers to develop and cultivate everything that God has made. Let me pray for us as the music team comes back up. Lord God, Jesus, we look to you and we ask, would you show us what it means to be human? Would you help us to see our right place in your story? Would you help us to see the beauty and the grandeur of what you've called us to? Would you help us to see the details that matter? That all of it belongs to you and you care passionately about it because you care about what you've made and you have set out to reclaim it. You have set out to renew it and make it new. And so we pray, would you start that work of redemption in us? Renew us that we would show the world what you're like and who you are. 
and then through us. Help us to live faithfully. Help us to live humbly. But help us to live grandly as your image bearers, little lords under you as our Lord. Amen.